Life is really good. I'm a very fortunate dude. I have very little to complain about. You mentioned a, a renaissance earlier? No, I just mean that uh, since we've met, um, I'd say you're like catching me at a really good point in my yep. life. I think, when did we talk last? About two years ago? In about two years. I mean, I pretty, I mean, work-wise, things have been really, really good. I'm very, very happy. You know, I'm a full-time cartoonist doing a series I really like, doing work I really enjoy. You've been a full-time cartoonist for some time now, right? Yes and no. <laughs> I think doing the Hilo series for Random House was a direct answer to not, you know, in quotes, air quotes, officially being a cartoonist for a while. I started out doing comic strips, mm-hmm. which led to doing my first graphic novel, which led to doing independent comics, which led to doing superhero comics, and then a bit of TV, animation, a little live action. You're and describing a pretty full career for a cartoonist. Yeah, I've done a lot of... I've, I'll put it this way. A good, yeah, good example, I was listening to you uh, talk to Adrian Tamini. Oh, yeah. And I know... Um, Adrian, he, he actually said that his, his experience is knowing mostly alternative cartoonists. And I was thinking about that. It's like, oh, yeah. I like I know all the guys, meaning that I know sort of the spectrum of folks who like you know a lot of older cats who did comic strip cartoons. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, I got to meet Mel Lazarus and the like, and folks like that. You know, uh, onto uh, more contemporary comic strip folks to guys who do comic books, which are a whole different thing, superhero comics, to knowing guys in underground cartoons, to knowing people in animation. The prototypical cartoonist is a somewhat Anti-social is the wrong word. Yeah. Let's just say socially adverse, maybe. <laughs> what I know about you doesn't really fit the bill. I mean, you seem like a fairly social person. Yeah. I mean, being a cartoonist is a little bit solitary. It's usually a lot yeah. of times one person in a room with a drawing board. But I've been able to make things up for money in a lot of different ways. And that's what I mean. I've just been really, really lucky. But there was, there was a five-year period when I sat down and did the math where I hadn't really drawn much. Like, not really. And I was getting deeply unhappy and really couldn't figure out why. And it was about that at some point, not knocking it, everybody should have my problems. I kind of became a full-time writer. I was writing superhero comics. I was developing a lot of TV that wasn't getting made. And this seemed to be the answer, you know, coming around and doing writing and drawing again. It made me so much happier. It was just... Just the, the simple act of drawing? Yeah. And, and really doing it. Not, yeah. just, not just noodling around or... Again, everyone should have my problems, but I, when I was working on an animated series, I was punching up storyboards and designing characters. You know, it's my show. We're doing a lot of writing and that, and that felt like I was scratching that itch. But then when that went away, I was writing superhero comics. I was developing live action TV, making a little bit of money doing that, but not actually drawing and in a lot of ways not feeling like I was making anything. It was your show, but even but with a situation like that, obviously you're working with a lot of people. Yeah. You're working with a network. It's probably not maybe... That one-to-one close to your, your ultimate vision just because there's so many cooks involved. And, and when you're working on a superhero comic, I mean, that's not really your thing at all, right? You're working with somebody else's IP. Yeah. You're working with a big publisher. They're probably breathing over your shoulder. So it was just time for you to just kind of sit down and make your own creation? I think so. I think it was a lot about yeah. kind of coming full circle. Because when I started, when I was a kid, I always wanted to do comic strips. I thought that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And uh, then I had the opportunity to do that. And I was doing that. And it actually yeah. wasn't very satisfying. Why? I did it all through college. I did like four years of doing a daily comic strip. And I loved it. Like, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Yeah. And then when uh, I the got... The real sin- world entered. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, well, no, wait. I meant, I meant the, like, the, the lowercase real world. Right. But, and then I realized who I was talking to. 
Well, and it's that, that that will happen, and we will we will talk about the real world capital R with a trademark next to it, and then you know lowercase real yeah, world. But um, reality entered. Yeah. Well, I, uh, honestly, I, I I lucked into I, out of college. I had a development deal with Universal Press Syndicate to do a comic strip. Then after nine months, they dropped me from development because they didn't think the strip was working, uh, which could have killed me. Did it make it to press? No, we never wow. quite got there. Nine months. Yeah, it was nine months out of a year-long contract where it was supposed to be in development. And the way that worked was they paid me almost no money. It was probably just for tax purposes. And I think I remember even them joking about it. That was like, yeah, it's kind of just for tax purposes. But it's like an internship. You're going to do your comic strip pretty much just in pencil, like eight and a half by 11 paper, like sketches. We'll do that for about a year. We want to see if you can make your deadlines, see if, the, if it's working for us. But it was more like, like the farm leagues of syndicated comics. You know, comic strips. This is nine months of a daily strip that you're working on and just kind of throwing out? No, no. This was the way the way they set it up, a development deal. I'm not sure they're in doing this anymore. I would submit a week of strips on a Sunday on eight and a half by 11 paper. You know, not fully done, but nearly like fully realized. And I'd go over it with an editor. We like this, we like that, a little more of this, a little more of that. And uh, every week I would have to turn that in. Every week they went into the mail, went off to the syndicate. It's like homework. Yeah. You know, it's an, it's kind of what it was to be a syndicated cartoonist. This is before anything was electronic anyway. Mm. So the next step would have been just taking those roughs and then making them to actual strips and inking them and sending them off. So everything was fine. I barely got notes. Everyone liked what I was doing. Then after nine months, I just went, well, you know, we've been thinking about it. We don't really see this strip being marketable at this time. And they dropped me from development. It took them nine months to come to that decision. Yes. And I really didn't feel I got a lot of feedback. The other thing was is that I did not see this coming at all. This was not... (laughs) You're a wide-eyed recent college graduate. Oh, no. I'd say that's a sweet way of putting, like, totally full of myself. I'm 22 years old and my dream's coming true. Like, just like Burke Breathed and, you know, and Gary Trudeau, you know, Strunesbury and Bloom County, I'm going to get syndicated right out of college. It's going to be in 500 papers. I'm going to make merchandise. I'm going to be rich. It's going to be great. And then after nine months, like, you're not doing any of that. You don't have a job. You're not a cartoonist. It's all over with. What does the day after that comes down look like? Like, the next day after, you know, all of this comes crashing down. So early on, something you've been working on for nine months just never really comes to fruition. Where do you go from there? For me, it was, I'm actually living in Boston in mm. a shithole apartment with Brad Meltzer. Brad, Brad's my best friend. Uh, we met, we became friends in college. We were friends ever since. So Brad was spending his evenings toiling away on his first novel yep. ne- that never got published. I'm working on my comic strip. Brad has finished his novel around when I'm like just about getting my head kicked in and thinking about that maybe he should go to law school. Because he's trying to find a literary agent. It's not exactly happening. He wants to send the book out. You know, and then he said, I think I want to go to law school. It's like, yeah, I think I, I don't know. I was actually looking at our lease was almost up, so I had to move home. He had a plan B. You didn't. No. His plan, and his plan B was, as far as he was concerned, terrible. He had, I mean, his terrible plan was to go to Columbia Law School, yeah. you know, which is where he went. Um, he had a golden safety net. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Except he graduated and never practiced law and he never, ever wanted to sure. be a lawyer. But I mean, he's doing fine. I understand. Yeah. He's doing okay. He's got, you know, uh, I think 10 bestsellers yeah. and, you know, uh, multiple children's books. And arguably I wound up doing okay as well. The day after finding that I, um, I wasn't exactly suicidal, but it was that feeling of all of my hopes and dreams were about to come true. And, and now they're not. Yeah. Um, so what do I do? Um, did you immediately turn to self-doubt in that case, or what, did it feel like external forces? I don't know if I ever allowed myself, we'll call it the luxury of saying, like, this sucks, maybe I'm not, I, I, can't, I can't do this. It was just that, you know, they're wrong. Let me go send it out to other syndicates. Let me just see what I can do, and let me just, what are my other options? So it was dark, but you did 
kind of hit the ground running or at least keep hustling. Oh, yeah. I just, it's, it's, I'd say it was just pretty much how I was raised. Yeah. You don't ever actually quit. And this was, there's a huge setback. But let me just, I mean, I'd been submitting to syndicates literally since I was 16 years old. And I had a pile of rejection letters. Anyway, this didn't happen. So let me figure out what I'm going to do next. In the process of just trying to get my bearings, like honestly, like this was, I don't know, the spring of uh, 93. Um, I moved back in with my parents. I did that once upon a time too. Yeah, it's, it's a great feeling. Yeah. There's nothing better than like, you're out on your own, you're making it and like, yeah, it kind of crash and burn. And You're right. I mean, if, I don't know if it was being raised this way or if it's just something kind of in, inherent that you have that you can go two ways with it. You can either just give up or that will force you to go further in the direction you're going in before. I remember I moved back in with my parents after school right. because... This was really the beginning of the, the economy just completely tanking. Okay. And it looked bad for somebody who's trying to be a professional writer. Uh-huh. Uh, I was working at a record store and a pet store in Fremont, California, and just went to Barnes & Noble one day and found all the mailing addresses in every single magazine and wrote handwritten letters to each of them. Nice. You kind of lean into it if you can. The choice is that... I mean, you felt that. Mm-hmm. What, is, what are my choices? I can yeah. keep working at the record store and the pet store, or I can go try and do something. And in this case, like, like how, how do I get out of this yeah. box that I finally find myself in? And for you, it was submitting letters to syndicates. Yeah, I just kept right on going. How many syndicates ultimately, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot fewer now, but how many yeah. were there at the time? The thing was, it was only about, maybe there were eight. I'd yeah. have to name them off the top of my head. I can't quite remember. And, and getting syndicated was... It's a cartoonist named Wiley who explained it to me one time. Like, yeah, getting syndicated is like the, the odds are better than playing major league ball. There's very few syndicates. There's very little space in newspapers. And timing had a lot to do with everything. Like, I think when they dropped me, it was also getting very kind of weird and competitive. I think Dilbert was probably the biggest comic strip in the whole wide world at that point. And maybe what I was doing, which was just like 20-somethings living their lives. Like yeah. it, didn't, it didn't have the focus that, you know, I was kind of... Aping Doonesbury in a way, aping Bloom County in a way. I guess it didn't work for them. Did you feel, though, that you were ultimately cut out to do that? I mean, if nothing else, working on this program for nine months gave you an idea of what it would be like to be in that world. I mean, that's, that's certainly not every cartoonist has that in them to be a daily strip maker. Truth. Yeah. I've, been, I've been trying to do it since I was a teenager. I didn't worry about ideas, deadlines, getting it done. That was something that I was always pretty good at. I never felt like, even when I eventually did get syndicated, I felt pretty comfortable. Like, I always came up with another idea. Yeah. I was always okay with it. It was just something that, that's why I'd always felt. I felt very sure, like, I'm supposed to do this. You know, I don't know if I'm good at anything else. I don't think I have another skill set in me except, yeah. like, to make up, like, you know, six jokes a week and a Sunday and, and, and draw things, like, you know, at this size and this shape and my own lettering. And, like, I just, I just felt like, like this is what I was supposed to do. You still kind of do that, too, right? Now I do. Now, that's that was, that's what it is about coming full circle. I assume that's not where most of your income is coming from. It's just it's a, a muscle you have to keep exercising. Not to bury the lead. I do this high-low series. And it's the only thing I have to do, and I'm doing yeah. more than fine. It's, it's, it's a, it's a best <laughs> We're worried about you, Judd. No, I'm fine. It's a best-selling book series published by this small independent publisher, yeah. Random House. I'm okay. You get, you get bu- letters from children all the time talking I, about how wonderful it is and um, you are. We're doing more than fine. Yeah. People joked, not joked me, asked me, where can I find the book? I go, you can find it everywhere. It's like, what do you mean? Like, you can find it in bookstores and comic stores and you can find it online. Yeah. It's, 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 it's put out through Random House. I do fine. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a book a year and they're very successful and do you, I'm happy. Do you feel like there's a little sort of like condescension when you tell somebody you're a cartoonist and they're like, Are you, is everything okay? It used to be. It, well, plus minus. I, like I've said, yeah. I couldn't be more satisfied than everything going on in my life than right now. 
Uh, I used to talk to Ed Brubaker, writer, yeah, comic yeah, book yeah. writer, now a uh, uh, writer, producer on Westworld. Um, Ed Brubaker. We used to joke about before we landed Batman, there was always a long litany of, it would be like this. Like, so what do you do? I write comic books. Oh, so what, what kinds? Like superhero comics. Oh, do you work on the, in the TV stuff or the movie stuff? Like, no. What comics do you write? It's like, well, I do this one, Green Arrow. Um, it's like, yeah, I don't know who that is. Who's, yeah. who's that again? Does he have the car? And like with Bruce Lee, like, no, that's Green Hornet. That was a TV show. And then later, like, you know, Green, you know, Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. And it was only when finally you got to like, like, what do you write? I write Batman. Everybody knows Batman with that. Now everyone knows everything, which is funny. Like you could, you know, now I go to schools. I go to schools and I, I talk to children and I tell them I used to write Green Arrow and Green Lantern and Batman. They all go crazy. They know everything. Superhero comics have come mainstream. I don't think anyone feels sorry for me anymore because I like, what do you do? It's like, I'm a cartoonist. Like, oh, if you done anything I've heard, I would have heard of. I do this series for Random House. It's called Hilo. It's a book series. And now popularity wise, like about a third of the people go, oh, my kid reads that, you know, or like, no, I've heard of that. Like, or where would I find that? And they walk away, come back and like, oh, and they're holding up their phone to me. Like, this is a bestseller. Congratulations. Like, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. That happened really quickly. I mean, I, I feel like the last time we talked a couple of years ago, it still felt pretty early on in the process. It had just come out. Yeah. Part of it was kind of designed by Random House. They let me bank the first book. Like it was done. And then it sat on the shelf for a good year and a half, maybe two years. Yeah while I was finishing the second one because they wanted the first three to come out every nine months. And with that, every book ended in a cliffhanger and my kids had to, by the time they turned around, like the next one was out. We're not quite three years into it and four books are already on the shelf. Part of it is that because of my training and my 10,000 hours in superhero comics and doing comic strips, I can do this pretty quickly. And also it's the first time in my professional life I'm only working on one thing. It's a luxury. It's like I could just, I'm not doing two monthly comics and developing a TV show while trying to write and draw something on my own. It's just this. I suspect that a lot of it, too, is the industry changing. I mean, so much of it. Reina has to have so much to do with the kids' book industry, just uh, kids' comics industry completely transforming in the last five years. Yes. When you've got five bestsellers on the New York Times list, the math changes dramatically. Where to begin? I'll selfishly begin with myself. It's the one time I have, quote-unquote, gotten in on something or professionally worked on something where it wasn't already like hitting its stride almost over, you know, like with syndicated comic strips, I came in like not during the death rattle exactly, but it wasn't what it was. Um, And superhero comics are just, it is what it is. What was the industry like with regards to what you were doing when the Pedro book came out? As far as uh, graphic novels? Certainly that was part of few zeitgeists with regards to subject matter. Yeah, yeah. The fact that you guys had a a popular TV show. But was there an infrastructure there to support a book like that? No, no. I mean, it was only, the book was actually put out as a a young adult title, which wasn't anything that would occur to me or my literary agent at the time. It was when an editor said, this is a young adult book, we'll put it out like that. And there were no, I mean, there were not a lot of graphic novels coming out at all. They even, for that reason, they put a photo on the cover of the first printing, a photo of Pedro, and later turned around and said, yeah, I think we want to switch to a drawing because graphic novels are, I think someone actually said in now, and I go like, okay, are rather established. That was over the course of a couple of years? Yeah, it took, I think the book was out. I mean, the book came out in 2001, so I think it was about five or six years ago that they decided to change the cover. Um, which I didn't have a problem with that. And, oh, that was re- oh, really recent in the grand scheme of things. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I mean, it, could, it could have been longer. I mean, it's been a while. It's been, so it's been 17 years yeah. since the book came out. But it was an entirely different time. And, yeah, with, with this as far as like putting out a book like Hilo, which is an all-ages cartoony action-adventure series, you know, it, 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 it's only now 
You'll talk to I mean, librarians have been on it for a while. Book buyers have been on it for a while. But now the public, the mainstream public, would say, oh, yeah, graphic novels are really in now. It's like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. A lot of it started, not, I think most of it started with Raina Tegelmeyer. And Raina pretty much made this with her own two hands by herself. I don't think I'm talking out of school, but when her first book came out, Smile, it did okay. I've known Raina for a while. You know, we were both, and I listened to the interview. Yeah, yeah, we were both in around the New York City Comics community. And we were you know, living in the same neighborhood in Historia. And she had done, I think the Babysitter's, yeah, the Babysitter's Club's yeah. books came out prior to that. She had four of them in yeah. black and white. And then she had this mini comic. You right. could go down to like Jim Hanley's and there'd be like a, you know, self Ashcan, baby. Right? Of, it, was, it, was, it was small. It was an yeah, ash can. Yeah, of, a- for those playing at home, ash cans are 8.5 by 11 paper, which yeah. are folded over and stapled. <laughs> That's right. Ash a, can. a zine, essentially. A zine back yeah. in the day. Of this book, and she just had no confidence in it. Yeah. And in hindsight, it makes sense. I mean, I was like, I was like, this is going to be great. You're great. Everyone, you know, everyone loves it. it. I think that a lot of her doubt with regard to the project came to the fact that the industry just wasn't there to support it at the no. time. No. It, it didn't. I mean, it, in truth, it didn't exist. It's a funny thing, and it's something I talk about all the time. And even with my own work, it comes up quite a lot. Let's look, com- comic strips are an all-ages medium. They always were. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be for everybody. You know, old yeah. people and young people go yeah. in there. It's been all ages. Cartoons in general have always been, in a lot of ways, an all-ages medium. Comics, when you think of comics, people think superhero comics. And, and I was part of this problem, um, you know, or thing that happened, <laughs> that we made them dark and gritty. And no longer all ages. When we were kids, you could pick up a Spider-Man comic. You could pick up a Batman comic and read it. Now there's so much backstory. Now they're mainly for teenagers and grown-ups. And so there was a disconnect there. So when Raina doing this memoir, which was drawn in a very cartoony, comic strippy style, which you know lends them a lot to for better or for worse more than it ever would the X-Men. And, uh, and when she put it out, again, like it did, it did okay. But she barnstormed for about two years. Mm. She went to schools. She went to schools and, and, and spoke and, uh, you know, went there and like she actually it was like it was like a paying gig where she would do an assembly, talk about her books, garner interest, get it in the library. And after about two years, something started to happen. Something started to happen. And then marketing kind of caught up with the fact that there was interest. And then it took off later. You're at this crossroads. You've been unhappy with what you're doing. You're, yeah. you're working kind of in and around what you wanted to do. I don't want to suggest that it was too opportunistic, but was part of it just you seeing that maybe there's a tide changing and, you know, maybe there is with schools and libraries and people getting interested with, um, you know, Scholastic launching graphics and for mm-hmm. a second and all these imprints coming along that maybe there's a place for you to do that kind of work. What I felt was looking at Jeff Smith's bone and Kazukabushi's amulet Reina was out there doing her stuff, which after that, there wasn't a whole lot. <laughs> and when yeah. I when it's about thinking about doing this, um, and this was about about six years ago. And uh, I told you this story last time. It truly was. It has the benefit of being true. When my son wanted to read my Batman run. My son was seven at the time, and he wanted to read some of my Batman you comics. You find out your dad's working on Batman. Of yeah. course you want to read yeah. it. Yeah. You know, he's ready. It's like, Dad, can I read your Batman comics? I said, no, you may not. <laughs> you can't read my Batman run because it's kind of for older kids and grownups. Like, yeah. you know. Guns, stabbing, decapitation, a lot of off-camera stuff. But was that marching orders from DC where they? No, I wanted to do it. Okay, that totally is the story I wanted to tell, man. They, they gave you the opportunity to work on this book, and you're—that's what you were interested. This is at the what time. we were doing, and this is what they're kind of still doing. Where we we grew up. My running buddies at DC were Jeff Johns, Greg Rucka, and our buddy slash boss Dan DiDio. And Dan wanted us to set the world on fire and tell big, great stories. Mm. And we were not interested in 
kids or being all ages. We were actually getting more mature. Like, Reagan and I were, like, the worst offenders. Jeff was better than us. Like, we were doing things that were incredibly violent, very sexual. And we didn't – we really, if you would ask me, like, well, I don't think kids can read. It's like, we're not writing it for kids. Yeah. You know, we truly would have told you that. You were, like, tapping into a, a dark place. <laughs> yeah. No, we really were. And we wanted to. And it was, it was arguably before, before I had children. Given what I've seen of yours that came before and has come since – it seems a little left field. No, I think part of it was that... Because you were doing the Oni stuff. Yeah. My favorite stuff had always been like, you know, I, I like mysteries. I like, you know, I'm not a horror guy, but what do I love? Like my favorite show is The Wire. You know, I love West Wing. I like mature themes. I like grown-up stuff. And You wanted to tap into what you liked about those sort of prestige programs and yeah. attempt to adapt it for comics. Yeah. You know, I think, I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a yeah. good blueprint of what I kind of wanted, mm. where it was a bit funny, pretty serious, incredibly high stakes. Yeah. But, but also up, tied into something completely fantastical. Yeah, totally. And that was great for about 12 years. Yeah. You know, and when I was coming sort of emotionally sort of like, I think like, I, I, I felt that I, was saying, I think I'm, I'm coming to an end to this. I don't, I don't know exactly what that's going to be. Is around when my son wanted to read my Batman books. And that's when I, the joke and the truth was I gave him Jeff Smith's bone. He lost his mind and loved it. I told Jeff that my son went nuts. Total truth. I actually went on Jeff's website and tried to buy a bunch of merch. And Jeff caught me like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> and I said, what? Like, your money's no good here. Which maybe that's even a funnier story than just letting yeah. him know. Like, I, the way I tell the story usually is like, I called Jeff, told him my son went nuts. And Jeff sent us two gigantic boxes of merchandise. Yeah. Truth was, I went and tried to buy some. Jeff said, screw you. Sent me two gigantic boxes of merchandise. So we got all this bone stuff, like out-of-print stuff. Yeah. And then my son, my son is bathing, swimming in bone stuff. And I got a little bit jealous. Like, it really sort of, like, came, came full circle. Like That he had your son's affections. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, I can do this. Yep. I, can, I, can, I can totally do this. So it was about combining what I know and love about doing comic strips. Mm. I draw cartoony. I like lots of jokes. But also, I've got 10,000 hours of doing superhero comics. I think I want to tell a big old action adventure, you know, told through the eyes of like an all-ages book. And um, I really did feel that, I don't know if anybody's doing this. I don't know if anybody cares. I don't know if there's an audience. Yep. I think there's an audience because yeah. my son wants to read stuff and he can't. You know, and when I give him old comics, there's a bit of a disconnect. It's just something about it. There's so many panels. It's really dense. Like, you know, you can't, you can't give them a Steve Ditko Spider-Man. Or in some cases, even, you know, it took a while for my son to warm up to Ultimate Spider-Man because it was at a period of time where Brian Bendis was doing this, I was doing this, yeah. we're all doing this. We couldn't shut up. How do you mean? Oh, we were so verbal. There's so many word balloons. It's just like, you know, there's eight to nine panels a page and everyone's talking, 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 talking. We couldn't help ourselves. It was ridiculous. It was getting kind of 90s indie movie. Yeah. We wanted to make TV shows yeah. where people talked all the time. We wanted to make indie movies where people were talking all the time. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you want to see Batman beat someone up. Or it's a visual Batman. medium. Yeah. You want to see some stuff. Yeah. But especially with Batman. You want to be Batman. You want to shut up yeah. and fight. Yeah. yeah. It took me a while to learn that. I, mean, I do that with my, you know, with Hilo, with my mainstream comics, is that I, I sort of watch myself. It's yeah. like if I'm doing nine panels on one page, it better just be talking heads and there better be like four or five words per panel. Like literally, we're having a conversation that has to pop back and forth. I, I, 
I think about it more as a visual medium. And well, of course you do. You're doing the visuals. I mean, yes, that's the big right. difference there. And, and I think that that's, that's one of the issues when you have a disconnect between writer and artist on comics is the writers don't always do a great job thinking about whether this is making the artist's life miserable. Yeah, no, in a lot of cases, like, yeah, so, and then I want you to draw about a hundred robots. Yeah crammed into this small room. I know for myself and, and like Brian Bendis, we had less trouble with that because we drew. We drew our own stuff. So we knew. Like, almost like this panel coming up like or this page coming up, I'm really sorry. Writing scripts, which are like yeah. letters. I mean, Bob Shrek, who was my editor from, uh, from the start and almost all the way through, told me way back when, when doing a script, you're writing a letter to the artist. Talk to them one-on-one -on -one. what you're looking to happen what you want is it make it personal because you'll you'll get better work out of whoever you're working with that they've won they'll understand what you're getting across and also you guys are in this together don't forget that and that was the best advice i ever got so my scripts were never brutally irritating although at times there was a lot of apologies through it and and sometimes like dude can we do something with this it's just two people talking in a room for four pages can they be doing something? Were you actively trying to court controversy with some of it? I mean, there are a few issues that came up in some of your work that upset people. <laughs> Not actively. And we can call it out. And by yeah. the way, I'm, I'm Teflon on this. I'm yeah. made of stone. You're never going to tick me off about talking about any of it. I don't say I was actively courting controversy so much as I knew, like, this will make trouble, but I don't care. Um, but it I wasn't so much like people are going to pick this issue up if something... I wasn't looking for a fight. Yeah. That wasn't... I know, I mean... Uh, Not even a fight, but, you know, maybe a spike in sales if... Oh, no, never that. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, I, let me think. You weren't being pragmatic so much as this is just what you wanted to write. No, I thought... I mean, the best way to put it is, like, one time Dan DiDio came to me and said, like, I think, I think we should introduce the character as HIV positive. I said, we're already doing it. Like, what? It's like, didn't Bob talk to you about it yet? He goes... No. I said, in Green Arrow, like, you know, Speedy, Mia's going to test positive for HIV. Yeah. He goes, when are you doing this? Like, okay, maybe, honestly, we just, we talked about it last week. So maybe like, oh, yeah, yeah. Bob talks to Dan. Bob calls me back. Dan calls me. Like, great, do that. I was going to have you do it in Outsiders, but this is better. This is way yeah. better. And in that case, like, it was less about sales, less about controversy than it was. It was doing the right thing for the right reasons. Like, yeah, more people will pay attention to what we're doing, but that's okay because we're doing it for the right reasons. We actually think a story like this should be out there. Inclusion and yeah. just trying to tackle real world issues in this completely fantastic environment I think I think part of it is because we are, are creating things in this fantastic yeah. environment why can't we do something like this it's always been a tough line especially for superhero comics to walk because you know the first time there's a gay character it's this big news story right and it and it does feel to some degree like the people behind it are just trying to get a spike in sales in the same way that you know when Captain America dies it's right it seems uh, it seems crass almost it does I mean unless there's like a good story behind it yeah that is the whole thing is like like, oh, oh you're, you're killing off Captain America. Like, yeah, but the long view of this, you know, is like there's a big, big story involved. We know it's a bit of a marketing grab. I mean, I'm going to crap on the death of Superman for a minute. The death of Superman felt more like marketing than story. Mm -hmm. I think if it were to be done now, I think we'd get really to the heart of it more. It felt a little dispassionate. It didn't feel like uh, the, the, the amount of motion that should have happened there. Yeah. Didn't really. But arguably also, that was during the go-go, crazy, insane, we're going to sell a million copies comics uh, of the 90s. It was this sort of holograph, holly-bagged era. We're going to put out four different yeah. versions of the same comic and put them in poly bags, which actually, as we learned later, don't actually protect the comics. It's purely just so people buy four of them. Everyone was under this idea that like, they were buying stock in the stock market. It was, a, it was like Beanie Baby adjacent. 
Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, not knowing that. I mean, there's a lot of people who were talking about like, you know, this doesn't work, right? Because if everybody has the comic, it's it's worthless. It's another tough line, though, that superhero comics have to walk even now. I mean, obviously, these things are mainstream because of the movies. Yeah. Everybody's paying attention to the culture. But it seems like they're always at risk of going out of business and sales are always down and people aren't reading them as much. So you do need to position all of them around these, you know, big epic crossovers, stories, yeah. things like that. There is a certain element of crassness to it, but it's almost kind of a necessary evil because in spite of the fact that this is mainstream culture and it is the biggest thing in the world right now, they're probably still having trouble selling even their most popular lines. Yeah, they'll get it right eventually. It, 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 it's kind of sitting in front of, in front of them, meaning the comic yeah. book industry, but I don't think they quite see it, is that why do the movies do so well and the comics don't? It's like, well, you can walk into the movie pretty cold and know what's going on. Yeah. I mean, and by the way, Marvel like did the yeoman's task of they started doing this, kind of happened into it, and then immediately said, stop. By the time they were getting to like the second or third Iron Man movie, like, stop. I have an insane idea. <laughs> it's like, what if we do the Avengers and what if we do it like this? Like, can we do this? Like, yeah, what if? And like, let's do a long-term plan. Let's sit down and figure this out. And let's start like see. I mean, after a while, I mean, they, they could not pull out after a while. If you go back, it's like. No, they started seeding the Infinity Stones with Captain America. It was it was like it was it was yeah. it was gutsy and brilliant and insane. And I often joke to my my kids that when Infinity War was coming out, like, listen, guys, if I was a kid and this movie was coming out, I don't know if it would have physically made it there. I think <laughs> I would have died because the greatest thing for me when I was a kid is a comic like all of the superheroes are now suddenly in one comic yeah. or one issue. Yeah. Like there's there's a like one of the first graphic novels, The Death of Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. which still holds up. Mm-hmm. Um, that was Starlin. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Starlin wrote and drew it. It's yeah. beautiful. Still holds up. It's like 90 pages. Yeah. They came out originally magazine format. I know this is very exciting for people listening at home. What I loved about it is was it was everybody. And it was the first time it was in this nutty thing. I'm, I'm burying the lead a little bit because Captain Marvel's dying of something incredibly pedestrian. Yeah. He has cancer. There in a laboratory was Reed Richards, Tony Stark, and Thor, who at the time is also Dr. Don Blake trying to figure out how to save him and also and uh, and dr strange is there too because he's also a doctor isn't he? Yeah. and it was, it was it was bizarre to actually see them do something so so pedestrian like all oh, right they're all doctors they're all scientists and they're trying to figure out how to save their buddy nobody did that nobody did that it was my, so we had jim sterling on, on the show and it was it, it was, was actually at, it, was, it was at baltimore comic-con mm-hmm. and my favorite thing about the interviewing jim sterling was we had this rig which we have for all the episodes it's just two two mic friends and a task cam and we were sitting behind the table so every once in a while somebody would you know come up and oftentimes somebody would have their sort of their wheelie suitcase and just unload and he did this thing where he knew every cover of every comic he did so well that he knew exactly where to sign. He knew like the spot where he could have his signature on there and was just doing like we were talking and he was just doing it so second nature. It was was really impressive. That's kind of amazing. He's a lifer. And my friend Marie, who's she's actually a a DC editor now, Marie Javins. So she's been in around the industry for a while and like her and other people were just like so touched by the fact that he got that shout out at the end of yeah. Infinity War. It was like a really big moment after, you know, decades of creators fighting for that recognition. I agree. And I mean, it's one of those things where it was a significant part of his, the stories he told, by the yeah. way. It, was, it wasn't like, I'm not even going to name names. Like I created this one character who popped up, like I'm not only me, me, I mean like other creators. I popped up this one character who popped in the movies and why don't I get credit or whatnot? No, Jim Starlin invested years into making Thanos something interesting. And, and it wasn't just Thanos. It was, you know, I, we, it was Adam Warlock was yeah. in the, at the end of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, we're not done yet. Adam yeah. Warlock's coming up too. And, like, and, and by the way, Thanos and Adam Warlock 
are they're so unbelievably comic booky and sci fi ish yeah. and geeky. Like they're really hardcore. And I don't think if you put a gun to Jim's head fifteen years ago and said, You think this is gonna be in like a yeah. giant movie? He's like, No. Like he was are you nuts? It's so entrenched in the nerddom. You know, that it's amazing that, that the people making the movies can actually see, like, no, this works because they actually saw at core what Jim created, which was like, it's a really, he's a really great villain. And obviously, you know, after, what, 10 or however many years they've been doing the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they know they have to keep raising the stakes. And yeah. Where do you go from two Avengers movies? Well, obviously, into space. I've actually, before doing Hilo, I reread a bunch of this the stuff that I didn't realize I was actually like rereading things to train myself or mm. figure it out. I reread uh, Jim Starlin's Dreadstar run. It's kind of ahead of its time. It's a little bit weird. He borrows from his stuff and other people's stuff. Uh, it's drawn so well. And it peters out when he's petering out. Like I said, I almost thought, what, 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 what I read, I read basically his entire run on it. And what I realized when reading it is that you needed to play to an ending here. Like you didn't know where it was going. And you, you decided you were thinking like a more like a serialized comic book writer that this has to go on forever instead of deciding like, no, it ends here. And like I was reading it like, yeah, you needed to close things off. Like right around here, you were ready. Instead, you flipped this, you flipped the script turned the table over and like changed up the whole comic and it was never quite the same. It's a big space comic mm. and big themes but in reading it it was showing me everything that I needed to know which is like the characters are established like bedrock like you know kind of like the peanuts. One thing that Lucy says one thing and Charlie Brown says one thing and you can't switch their dialogue. Or a sitcom. Right. Just the, the beats they're, are all there. Yeah they're locked. You know yeah. who they are and he did, he did that with like I was thinking about the peanuts and Dreadstar and yeah. Equal Measure and Doctor Who when looking at this all ages comic book series that I wanted to do. Does Hilo have a definite beginning and ending? Yeah. When I first sold the series to Random House and I wanted it to be a series and basically, you know, here's the book and here's the next couple of books to be like this. So my editor, who's going to be my editor for life on the book, her name is Shana Corey. So Shana asked me, it's like, okay, so it's going to be a series. How many books do you think it's going to be? And I was thinking like, well, I kind of see it like a TV series. Like I have like an overall story what this big mystery is, but it'll be kind of like a monster a week. Like, you'll find a different, like, bad guy yeah. every every book until we finally get to the eventual ending. A larger, the, overarching yeah. character so I, I see, like, 20. Yeah. So, like, so like, 20 books. Like, yeah. I write superhero comics. I write, you know, 20 books TV is shows. a lot of books. I wasn't really thinking about that, but Shana, like, like walking me through it like a child, says, 20. Like, okay, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's pretty ambitious. Sounds great, Judd. She has, uh, guys, I have two thoughts on that. I have two thoughts on that. One, she said, as a reader, I've read the first one, yep. and actually the big note I wanted to give you is just the first book because I kind of want to know more about the mystery right now. You, you've only like sort of teased it a little bit. I, I kind of want to get into more like Hilo has amnesia, he doesn't know where he's from, why he's here, what he can do. I think I want more. So that's in the first book, and I, I kind of want to get to that story a little bit more. I think I want that to be more of your A story about that's what this journey is, about like who he is and why he's here. So that's for starters. Secondly, if you're going to average about a book a year um, – if you're going to do 20 of them, well, if a 10-year-old's reading the first book now, they're going to be 30 when you're done. And that's a long time. <laughs> I just said it that way. I go, oh, okay, 20's too much. Like, yeah, I think 20's too much. I think 20's too much. So, so why don't you go back and yeah, go back and think about it. And actually, it was very freeing because instead of me figuring out that I have to kick the can down the road for 20 books, it's like, well, I know I wanted to land here. I knew the ending. And, and I know I wanted to land here. So I was like, okay, so what are my breaks? What are my beats? For each book, like yeah. where are we going to land? And I just figured it out. I'm like, okay, it'll be six. You sat down and wrote them down? 
I, I basically broke out the big beats. Yeah. I like, we'll do this, do this, do this. It gets murkier in the middle, but I knew and then we'll, we'll kind of end here, which was great. I said, I'll come back and say, oh, but give me six. Then the first one came out and it was a bestseller. And Shana came back and said, like, but we'll do more than six, right? Like, no, but no, you said, you said that. Like, well, it doesn't, I mean, she actually said, like, does everybody die at the end of the six books? Like, no. It's like, well, can you do more after that? Like, yeah, okay, yeah, you know what? Yes, I can. And it was about figuring out, like going back to superhero comics, these, this, these six books are the first arc. It's like the origin story. Like, okay, I can do that. And then, you know, and then we're going to tell an entirely new kind of story with these characters after that. You felt so strong about the characters going into them. I mean, obviously, there's a commitment on the part of the children who are going to be 30, but it's a lot of, that's a very long time commitment on your part as well. You liked what you had at its core so much that you were willing to commit yourself to 20 books? Yeah, I just knew after sitting down for about a year and change on spec and writing and drawing a 200-page graphic novel, like, oh, right, this is what I've, this is what I've been this is what I've been supposed to do. I mean, it, it took me a while to it took me a while to get around to it. Like, I, I did comic strips, I did superhero comics, I did animated series, and all that kind of went into me getting to write here, my 10,000 hours of figuring it all out. It's like, oh, I can do this, and this makes me happiest. I know how to do these long-form action-adventure stories, and, and I'm good at it. And it's, it's kind of second nature because I did them for so long. But I love drawing, and I love drawing kind of cute characters like they're in a comic strip, and I like lots of jokes like it's in a comic strip. So when I was able to put all these things into one basket, like this is an all-ages action-adventure drawn like a comic strip that's serialized that's going to tell one big story. It's like, I can do this. I want to do just this. This is my superhero story. This is how I want to tell it. And part of it comes back to, um, I'm bringing up Ed Brubaker again. Ed and I were talking about I think he was, he was either talking about working on Westworld or something else. They were running into some plot problem. You know, something pretty, what they saw as vast. Like, we can't do this, we do this. And Ed said, well, what if we take this character when this character does this? Instead of this, we move it here. And then we'll, we'll do all this thing over here, and we'll do it like that. Three-dimensional chess. Yeah. And yeah. it was like, how did you do that? It's like, <laughs> oh, I wrote superhero comics for 10 years. <laughs> it's, it became second nature because yeah. at some point, someone's going to say, hey, you've got this storyline you're doing. But uh, Nightwing broke his leg in, in his own solo book, so he can't be in there. It's like, what? It's like, Nightwing can't be in the story. Like, oh, come on. It's like, Somebody else's series is profoundly affecting what you're trying to do. Yeah, where your story's going to land, suddenly you can't do it all. Yeah. Because someone's playing with your toys over here, so you have to reinvent it. It's like, okay, if I do this, I put this here, I go here, and this, that, and then, uh, and, and just, you usually had to just figure things out. Or something just wasn't working, and you have no time. It's like, the book has to come out. Yeah. I mean... Actually, Greg Ruck used to say, like, sometimes your first draft gets published, and that's a little rough. That's uh, <laughs> it's a little ragged. You're like, you're like, oh, wish I had a little more time with that bad boy. But it's got to go. It's got to go. Is it ever harder to motivate without all those external constraints? Not really. I'm, I, I think part of it is that despite the fact that I'm working on just one thing, despite the fact that I don't need a new script or two scripts yeah. or three scripts coming out every 30 days, I'm on a f- pretty breakneck schedule. Um, I'm a bit precious, but I'm not too precious. I don't feel the need that if I finish a draft of the book, now 10 of my friends have to read it and everybody give me notes and let me pull it apart and almost start over. I'm comfortable by the time that I'm finished that I'm pretty much there. I think also doing comics is trained one to get used to deadlines. I mean, start with comic strips, which are deadlines have to happen. It's got to go in. And with comic books, you, you can kick the can down the road pretty far until you're in trouble where it's like, we need a script now. 
so the artist can start drawing. And I need three people to draw this book now because you're so late. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's how late this book is. If somebody uh, approached you tomorrow and said, listen, we, you know, we want to do this as an animated series, but we really want you to be the showrunner. Mm-hmm. Is that a world you'd be comfortable exploring again? I will let you know. <laughs> It's because um, it's. I mean, it sounds like you know, for all of the good that came out of it, that ultimately it, you just were unfulfilled and just kind of unhappy. Um, yeah, don't get me wrong. Probably my rock bottom sure. of unhappiness was probably a lot better than most. You know, as you know, I've been traveling a lot lately, yeah. and I'm about to get on a plane to go to LA, and I'm tired, and I'm not home, and all these things. And who do I get to complain to about that? Right. <laughs> you know, about this job that I get to do for a living. Like, who's going to listen to that and feel sympathetic? Yeah, you really can. Yeah. It's so like, yeah, it's like, I'm so sorry you get to write about all these amazing things yeah. and travel all over the country. Must be so hard. <laughs> Must be so hard. So, yeah, similarly... I'm sorry that your cartoon show was difficult for you, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that the animated series only went three, four seasons. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry that um, you were running a little short on ideas for Green Arrow and, uh, and Power Girl yeah. and whatever the hell it was. Oh, um, were they mean to you on the internet? I'm so sorry. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could spend a full hour talking about, like, mean on the internet. Yeah. I, I joke with some other folks now and again, like, I don't want to complain too much about, like, Back in the day when they had bulletin boards, back in 1994, and people were complaining about, you know, my appearance on the real world. Like, don't complain to me, young man. When they weren't even called haters. Yeah. When they were just people complaining, whatever. I've always been able to make things up for money, so my level of unhappiness has been like, whatever. I've always had it pretty good. I'll say this. There were times where I just, those last couple years, I wasn't... I wasn't walking around happily with the stories in my head, anxious and happy to get in there and like and write. And that was new. That was a new it feeling. It felt like work. It felt like work. Yeah. I'm spoiled in that way that I, I, I really want to love what I do in a, in a real way. I, that old adage that if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. I actually didn't want to really, really work. Um, not in that way. I don't mind it being challenging, and it is. You know, I'm working on the sixth Hilo book, and, and I know exactly what the story is, but I'm agonizing scene by scene to get it right. Now, agony doesn't mean like I'm, you know, I'm not digging ditches, but I'm, and I'm sitting and I'm sitting at home on my computer writing my cartoon book. But um, I do know what makes me happy. Now, that said, to circle back about like the next incarnation of Hilo, if it becomes a movie or a TV show. Yeah, the hard part is that I do want to work on it. If it becomes a movie, yeah, I kind of want to write and produce. Why? Because I've written and produced animation. It, it isn't like I'm coming into this like I'm a novelist who's never written a screenplay. I'm a cartoonist who is worked, written, and produced animation, and that's what this would be. Maybe this is a better way of phrasing it, actually, though. If a job like that came along and it meant that for some extended period of time you weren't able to do this thing that you've tapped into and clearly loved, would you be willing to make that sacrifice? I can be very specific about it. If it happens that someone comes along and... We won't even say a movie, because a movie's short-lived in the sense that I can write the script, it goes off, they start making it. timeline. Yeah, yeah, it'll take four to six years to sure. make a giant animated movie. But there's, a, there's an ending in sight. Yeah. I'll post if we do a series on something like, let's say we want to do an animated series on Netflix. Do I want someone else to be the showrunner? No, yeah. I, w- I would want to do that. I, wouldn't want, I want to be there day to day. Yeah, the idea kind of, uh, the best word would be uncomfortable. Because I, I really enjoy doing exactly what I'm doing the way I'm doing it right now. And the idea of having to go and make a series, which... I'd have to leave the house and go places and talk to people and storyboards and scripts and cutting shows down to, to, for timing and then music and sound. I mean, I, I, know, I know everything it entails. It's a full-time job, probably. And uh, would I want to do that? I can't see that I wouldn't want to do it because I would love seeing it in a different medium. I love this story and I love these characters. And the regrets of turning something like down. Yeah, it'd be a hard decision. Yeah. 
I mean, I would, I would ideally figure out how to make it work in a way that makes, makes me happy yeah. and I could still do the other stuff, but it might be a thing where I don't know that it could be like, okay, I did X amount of seasons on this. Let me, these guys got it. Let me take a step back cause it's working and I'll, you know, I mean, that's part of me thinks that, or maybe I'll turn around saying, I love it. You know, I love doing this. I love doing it in television. I think I'm, but I can't imagine it. I think I've, I think, I think I really, I like drawing. I'm switching to drawing on computer more just because I want to work faster. You do this regular strip now. It's what, this makes me happy. Is that what it is? Yeah, I haven't had a chance to do it as much as I want to. It's like, uh, yeah. But yeah. It, it seems like I'm going to use a buzzword, so forgive me for this. It's, but it, it, you're, you are forgiven ahead of time. Seems like a practice in mindfulness. Yeah, I try. Of just being conscious of these things in your life. Is that something that you have to or have in the past had to work toward? Well, the comic strip in question, this makes me happy, came it's out of... just a, a series of things that you like. Yeah, and I try to make them a little bit funny yeah. or just a little bit more mindful. Like, you know, here's a picture of Hayao Miyazaki. Like, because he does. He just makes me happy. Sure. And everything he does. Like, it's the best way to say it. You know, or Kurt Vonnegut or, you know, unexpected hugs. Just, and they're, they're cute and they're a little bit pablum, but they're, they're honestly heartfelt. I did a book for my wife about 20 years ago, which was basically this like a list of things that make us like kind of happy yeah. and i gave it to her and i think we were talking about it. i said like i think i want to do more of those and maybe just like put them out there because i couldn't figure out what i wanted to do with social media i still don't and i wish i had more time to do all of these but just, it just i just have less time to draw because i'm doing high low all the time and i just like the idea of putting a little something out to the universe and i like that people like it do i have to remind myself to be happy we don't have to dive into politics too much but just a couple of years ago it was easier to remember how to be happy than it is now like we're in we're in some you know, we're, we're, we're in the dark times a bit here and there. And sometimes it, 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 we have to remind ourselves that it's okay to stay present and chuck all the madness going on in the world and try to stay, you know, um, maybe unfocused and a little bit happy, present and a little bit happy. I'm lucky. I do admit the uh, present uh, uh, political climate is like killing my mojo. Man, everything was, uh, and it's funny, I've had this conversation with a lot of my friends who, who's everyone whose family is good, everybody's healthy, they're doing work they can enjoy, and they sort of feel like the universe said, yeah, not so fast, motherfucker. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how much of this is, is human nature and how much of it is brought out by the internet. I suspect it's a little bit of both. It feels easier to be negative about things, right? Oh, I mean, totally. It feels easier to go on the internet and complain about the latest Star Wars movie than it is to find something that like you like because you, you take those things for granted. Yes. It's a, it's you, to, to, to take a nerd example uh, or metaphor. It's a multi-sided die on that one. It is always easier to complain about something and people more, more readily are motivated by negativity yeah. and the internet is this toxic swamp of negativity many, many times. I mean, part of it is a, what was it? what were they talking about? Um, that uh, I was uh, David Sedaris was talking about. You were talking to Terry Gross about mm. his negativity, and she said a lot of your stuff is very negative. Because well, yeah, because it's more interesting, and like that's the fun side of negativity, you know. And it's things I tell my kids sometimes when we're talking about stories is that it's hard sometimes because bad things have to have to happen to your good guys. You know, you need conflict. Yeah. When you ask children what you want, what they want to happen in the stories, they actually don't see, and then something happens to the good guy. This makes me happy. It would be a very boring graphic novel. Totally. It's not about that. It is about, like, little aphorisms. Yeah. It's just about having a little bit of fun. But I think with so much negativity out there, I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why I worry a little bit with Hilo, but I know the direction we're going in. I created Hilo as a positive protagonist. Uh, not unlike Doctor Who, who has a dark side, but is always very so excited about everything. If it's new, even if it's going to kill them, even if it's like monstrous, like, oh, but you got to appreciate how amazing this thing is. I wanted him to be that. I didn't want him to be doom and gloom, grim. 
I wanted him actually to show up and go like, come on, let's go. It's not an adventure. Let's go, let's go, let's go. It's like, but we might die. I know we might die, but it's going to be really interesting along the way. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Not only did I love doing that, actually, children in particular, and the grownups who were finally coming around. It took a little while for grownups to realize that, hey, you should write, like, why wouldn't you come back to doing superhero comics? Like, I am doing a superhero comic. It's like, no, I mean, that's just for kids. Like, it's actually not. If yeah. you, like, we're four books in, go take a look. Take them out of the library. Go on. To check it out. That I'm actually doing kind of a long form story that is superhero comic readers, serialized readers, they'll they'll enjoy too. There is a way to tell these action adventure stories that aren't all grim and dark. They can be dramatic. They can have stakes and still be a lot of fun. But uh, but when the bad things happen, I mean that's what I'm worried about right now. Is we kind of get to the ending of this first big arc. Bad stuff happens, and I'm hoping that the kids who've come along for like the all five books, um, when we hit number six. And some of the bad things happen, that they're still okay, that they realize we, we end well, but, you know, it's, it's, it's bad stuff. I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, you probably laughed just the way I did. Laughed is the wrong word. When, when Infinity War came out, we, we finished watching, like, oh, that was amazing. And then there's all the stuff in the mainstream press, like, wow, the silence in the theater, like, what? What are we talking about? Oh, that the bad guy won. Well, yeah, but they're going to make another movie. It's not a... Oh, you guys don't understand what this is like. You're feeling weird. Like, no, this is a superhero story. Sometimes the bad guys win, but the good guys win in the end. Can't you guys see what they're doing? Like, I give them points. The bad guy won for the first part of the story. You saw Empire Strikes Back, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Didn't end great. Didn't end great. It's like, and then they came back in the end. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm walking out of the theater, like, you know... And my son and I were talking about, like, yeah, this is going to be great. Like, we're excited. He goes, yeah, but it was sad. Like, yeah, but but look. Like, yeah, but everybody died. Like, nobody died. They all just disappeared. I said, a couple people died, died. Capital yeah. D died. But look, look who's left. Who's left? He goes, well. And he, he rattled them off. I go, right. All the original Avengers. All the original Avengers. They're putting the band back together. <laughs> this is, I don't know what it's sad about. This is great. This is great storytelling. Now that you're you know, a fair bit deeper into the series than you were before. Looking back on that original idea of 20 books, is this series something you would be happy if this is just, if it kind of went on forever, or at least as long as you're able to write and draw? Two-pronged answer. One, I mean, the quick answer is yes, but I'm shrugging as I say yes. I have, I started looking at this as I came towards the sixth book as a longer view about, because, you know, they want more books after this and with these characters. Do I want to keep writing these characters forever? No, I kind of have a finite idea of where we're going to land on this. And also, I know for me, it's going to eventually be less interesting. You know, after X amount of books, like, no, I think it's done. I think we've we've run their course and like the story should kind of end there. I will say that I want to keep doing this in this way for the rest of my life. I, I want to keep doing like a book a year. Long form comics. Yeah, writing and drawing. You know, and I think I, I kind of want them to be, you know, sort of action adventurish. I don't think I want to tell the story of, uh, you know, a memoir or something about like kids mm. just in school living their lives or whatnot. I, the truth of it is, I, I think other people do that better than me. Um, and that's not even it. I, I, I'll say it's more along the lines that I just love telling like kind of crazy action adventure stories. I like things with like science fiction and magic and fantasy who, who are maybe firmly rooted in, yeah. um, you know, reality in some way. I mean, this is what was funny was when I was doing comic strips. And I wanted to do comic strips. I always read comic books. And I loved science fiction and fantasy. It was always there. But those things were never going to overlap. It was always going to be... The comic strip is going to be like Bloom County or Doonesbury or family-oriented. It was never going to get into the action-adventure itch that I always had. You know, if you ask me as a kid, what's your favorite thing in the world? It's like, oh, Star Wars. You know, and it always was. But it was never going to enter into my work or the stories I was making up because that was going to be totally different. Now it can. Now I can tell, like, big crazy science fiction-y fantasy stories that are kind of funny, that are, you know, cute drawings, and, you know, it's... Well, the best way to put it, 
a buddy of mine, a real close buddy of mine, was saying like, yeah, but when, you know, after a couple of years, you're going to have to figure out how to do a, a more YA or even adult comic again yeah. because your, your, your readers are going to grow up. No. I said there's going to be new readers. They're born every day. So many people I talk to, and I think this just is part of like being a creative person and just the human experience in general, but everybody's always chasing something and everyone is always a step away from that thing that they really want to do or, the, or, their, or their ideal project, but they seem to have found it. I really think I have. I really hope I have. I was lucky enough that the best way I can describe it is that when I first started doing Hilo, I did it on spec. I, I, I didn't have a publisher. Yeah. I didn't even have a... My literary agent was more along the lines of very literary and couldn't handle something like this, like a graphic novel for kids. But I knew, like, I'm just going to try doing this. And if I have to do it as, as a Kickstarter, fine. If I'll do self-publish, fine. I don't care. I just... I know I need to... I need to try to do it this way, where, again, put all the eggs in the basket. I want to tell a superhero story for kids, for everybody, with characters like this in this way. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. And just that knowledge of it, just like this opportunity might not present itself. So, like, this is the thing I want to do. I'm going to yeah. do this right now. A lot of times people have to realize I have yeah. to do that. And it's... You were talking about this with Adrian Tomini. Yeah. You were talking about that a lot of creative folks don't realize that they don't have the... They just don't have the time to pursue their creative arts because they have to have the day job. And if I, I ever mean, get you're in San Francisco, he's in New York. That's a big part of it. There's just there's no safety net here, no. and especially no. with children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and that's why it's it's you you, you gotta you gotta the jump for the net will be there, is for the young. Yeah. Before you have a family, before you have a lot of responsibilities, you need to find the time to have that. We used to, we used to call them Mick jobs as far as you know the mm-hmm. McDonald's job. You got to work at a record store yeah. you know, or a pet store or, in my case, like, you know, a, a bookstore or do spot illustration work for whatever, T-shirts or whatever, just, just to pay the bills. And then when you're tired and you go home at night, that's when you work. And that's when you're not spending time with your children or your wife or whatnot. It's, you know, it, is, it is for the young. It's like, you know, it's like, well, I wish I had the time to like you. You have the time. You're, you're a single person who has a day job. And, uh, I mean, you know, was it E.E. E. Cummings who, like, did his best work when he's a patent clerk? He was bored out of his mind mm-hmm. all day long. It was horrendous. Like yeah. he, but not suicidal, but it was boring. But while he's doing his boring work, he said his mind was always on his poetry. And then when he went home, he worked on it. You had this sort of momentary opening. For me, what I had to do, well, there was, there, the, the overlap happened in this way. That I was still writing superhero yeah. comics. And, uh, you know, I have a job. And I'm writing a couple of monthlies. And I'm fine. And, uh, and arguably my wife, my wife works, she's a doctor Now she's, she's, uh, we can call a poor people, poor people, doctor. She's a doctor of internal medicine. She's a clinic and she's a researcher. So, you know, we don't have three houses. We have one and, you know, and we do fine. And she's also very supportive and understanding of what you do. Literally in the sense that I'd written and drawn almost done, almost done with doing like my first draft of Hilo and, um, I'm still working for DC comics. And I still, I think I had one monthly left and I was thinking about picking up another one and I had to rewrite. They kind of kicked back to me an outline for the next six issues for Batwing. They didn't like where it was going. They wanted me to rewrite it and I just couldn't do it. <laughs> and it, I was literally, so Pam and I, Pam's my wife, we're sitting on the couch as grownups do now with our laptops mm-hmm. and we're working in quotes. She's doing, she's like putting out notes on a research paper and I'm yeah. supposed to be rewriting this outline. She's doing important doctor stuff. You're doing Batman. I'm doing Batman. Yeah. And um, at, at to... least the roles are firmly in place. Oh, yeah. We know we're doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one's overlapping here. She's not making up stories, and I'm not trying to stop big tobacco. But there it was. And I was faced with I had to, like, basically tear apart this outline and come up with a whole new next six issues for this comic 
And it was one of those things where this was more like work and I didn't have the idea. Yeah. And um, uh, I actually turned to her and said, like, I think I want to I think I want to quit. It's like it's like and we, she said, well, we talked about this. You can. You know, it's like, no, I mean, I think I want to quit right now. It's like meaning what I said, I think instead of handing in this rerun of the outline, I think I want to send them the email to tell them that I want to I want to leave this book. And she says, go ahead and do it. Like, without even looking up, it's like, no, no, wait, listen. This would mean I won't have a job. <laughs> and she said, we'll be fine. And she said, you'll be fine. And she reminded me something that she always remind me, that there wasn't anything that I ever loved doing that didn't ultimately succeed. Stuff I did for money tended to crap out. But things I really loved and was passionate about, they would always pay the bills in some way, always would succeed in some way. And she said, it'll be fine. And I said, okay. You know, wrote the email, told the guys, like, listen, you know, um, and it was the truth. Like, if I was going to finish the book, I needed more time and, like, a time crunch. Like, I'm sorry, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to finish up. Next issue will be my last, and I apologize. And sent it off. It's like, you know, tap, hit send. It's like, okay, there, I quit. I don't have a job anymore. Like, that's it. And she said, okay, we'll be fine. Now, I'm very, very lucky because, I don't know, about three weeks later, I'd finished a draft, and then I had a new literary agent, and she, you know, and uh, like three or four months later, like she sent it out to like 15 publishers, and then we had lots of offers, and it wasn't a problem. And it was just one of those things. Uh, for me, I was lucky in that sense. It is not something that I advise all young people to do, like quit your job and work full-time yeah. on your passion project. Like, no, no. Keep your day job when you're young and work on your passion project with whatever spare time you possibly have. And get it done. And marry someone who is successful and much smarter than you are. Yeah. You know, or as Pam has often said, like, successful enough that we'll be okay for a while. <laughs> she always said, like, at any point, she always gives a caveat, like, I'll support you in anything you do. But at some point, it might be like, okay, it's like, whatever nonsense you're doing that isn't paying any money at all. It's like, now it's time to end. She says, it's never happened. But she said, I was always ready to, to give you that, that lecture, but... It's never happened, but she's always been, she's been the best. It's actually what's, what's fun about my family and having children who are nine and 13 and doing an all ages comic like this is that we're all kind of in it together. It's really, it's a lot of fun in that way. It's like, I finished a draft. My daughter comes in, will literally look over my shoulder and read the page I'm working on and know what it's about and do the voices of the character. And like, like, it's great. Like we're all in this together. I highly recommend that to everybody do a project that your whole family can enjoy. It's the best. There you go. That was our buddy Judd Winnick. We recorded that one at a coffee shop in the Tenderloin. Uh, this is the second time we've had him on the show. Last time we spoke, we were backstage at New York Comic Con. I suppose a, an equally chaotic setting, and it was a bit of a short interview. So I'm glad we finally had the opportunity to sit down and really chat for a while. You can check out his work at JudsPillowFort.com. His latest book, Hilo Book 4, Walking the Monsters, came out earlier this year on Random House. Thanks so much to him. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever you happen to hear podcasts. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. If you got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com and that's about it for this week so stick around because we're going to be back next week with another episode of RIYL